Well, welcome. Uh, my name is Rick. If you're new to our church, I was gone the month of July on a study break. It was my privilege to preach every Sunday at different churches across the country and especially visit our church plants. And I want to tell you about a couple of that I visited uh, last month. This picture you're seeing is Jesse and Becca Lusco. They're in Portland. And next month they will be starting Counterculture Church. It is a real mission field, and they are particularly equipped for the challenges they are going to face. You'll see in the next picture, this is the facility God made graciously available for an incredible price. They get that building right where they want to be on Sundays and on Thursdays, and they get to store all their stuff there, which is a huge blessing when you don't have a facility of your own. So be praying for the Luscos and that church. And then we also got to go to Oakland, California, and we got to meet Gabe and Carrie Garcia, and they are about to celebrate the second birthday of New City Church in Oakland. You can see the building where they meet on Sunday afternoons, and when you don't have a building and you're a church plant, this is what church looks like. A church, uh, every day a truck drives up and you unload church in big baskets, and it takes a long time to set up. You can see the facility that they're renting on Sunday afternoons. The front half is where the church gathers for worship. The back half for connections and other gatherings. The next picture, that's what a nursery looks like when you plant a church. <laughs> and I love this next picture. Because if you want a church in a place like Oakland, you can't just walk in late, get a little dip of preaching, and then walk out. You've got to help set up church. And so they show up hours before to set up church, and they stay hours after to take it back down. And that's the group of about 30 people that invested that day. So there could be church in Oakland praying together. And in the last picture, you see me preaching to this beautiful, ethnically diverse, spiritually vibrant people of faith. And get this, that church that is not yet two years old is helping to support the church in Portland that we are helping to launch next month. And one thing I've heard over and over from our church planners is we want to learn to be generous like the Hills Church. I've heard from churches across the country that thank us for our generosity. And here's the thing. It didn't just happen. Churches are like people. They don't drift into generosity. And I tell these planners, if you want generosity to be a kingdom value in your church, you're going to have to teach it. You're going to have to be bold. You're going to have to be clear because discipleship never happens if stewardship never develops. And the mission of the hills is not to make and grow partially committed followers of Jesus. And so just like we talk about race and we talk about mental health, so we don't apologize for talking about money and wealth and riches. So that's what we're going to do in the month of August. And I'm going to start with this foundational premise. We're going to build everything on this next statement. It's not bad to be rich, but most are bad at being rich. So what I want to do this month is teach you how to be good and rich. We're going to live for four weeks in a text that Paul wrote to his friend Timothy, pastoring a church in Ephesus. Just three verses, chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. We're going to read these verses every single week because I want them to be etched into your memory. In fact, 
Heads up, the next three weeks, you're going to say them out loud with me. But today I'm going to read them to you. And I want everyone at every campus to stand up and receive the word of the Lord. This text, every single phrase is pregnant with spiritual truth. So I want you to open your ears. The Holy Spirit is speaking to us right now through Scripture. So please listen and have ears to hear. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share in this way. They will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. May you receive the word of the Lord. Have a seat. So, you'll notice that twice in three verses, Paul tells young Timothy, pastoring a church, command the rich. So I want to say three things the Bible teaches about rich people up front. I think a diligent study would affirm. Number one, God loves rich people. Whether you have a little or whether you have a lot, God loves you a lot. Number two, God saves rich people. We see this all through the New Testament. Zacchaeus was a very wealthy tax collector. Jesus said today, salvation has come to your house. Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple who actually gave the family of Jesus his own unused tomb to bury his body when it was taken off the cross. In Acts 8, you have a high-ranking government official from Africa who gets saved. In Acts 10, you have a high-ranking military officer in Rome who gets saved. In Acts 16, you meet a woman named Lydia. She's a business owner, an entrepreneur, a civic leader, and she gets saved. Our faith is built on our father Abraham, who was a very wealthy man. It's clear in Ephesus there are some rich people. That's why Paul is telling Timothy how to teach them. God loves rich people. God saves rich people. Here's the third truth. It is hard to save rich people. That is not my bold assessment. That is the assessment of my rabbi. So listen to Matthew 19, 24. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Already the mental gymnastics have started. Don't do that. Don't massage the words of Jesus. Don't nuance the words of Jesus. Let Jesus say what he said. It is hard to save rich people. In fact, over 40 years of being a pastor has taught me something. That prosperity is much more toxic to faith and discipleship than adversity. As a pastor, I can give you hundreds of testimonies of people who went through adversity and it brought them closer to God. Maybe it was a financial adversity. Maybe it was a relational 
breach. Maybe it was a health crisis. And they would say, I don't want to go through it again. But I have to tell you, it took me to my knees and I sought the Lord. And I've been closer to God because I went through such a hard time. I have yet to hear one testimony in over 40 years of the person who said, I was far from God, I didn't care about God, and then I came, became suddenly wealthy, and I found Jesus. My experience is that few things cause people to drift away from God and the body of Christ more than gaining great wealth. Now, it's not bad to be rich, but it takes intention to be good and rich. So each week from our text, we're going to learn a principle, four principles of how to be good and rich. And here's the first thing we got to remember. You got to maintain humility. Notice the very first thing he said, command those that are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Maybe your Bible says haughty or proud or high-minded, but ask the question, Why did the very first thing Paul associated with affluence be arrogance? What is it about affluence that tempts us to arrogance? Well, I thought about that. I came up with three thoughts. Now, this is not thus saith the Lord. This is thus saith the pastor. So take it for what you think. Here's one idea. That isn't it true that wealth can produce a false sense of security? That riches make us susceptible to the illusion that we can control the future. If I can just amass enough stuff, nothing tomorrow can touch me. How vain is that? That because you're rich, you are somehow immune from drunk drivers and rogue cancer cells? James says... You're going to go next year and you say, I'm going to go to this city. I'm going to go to that city. I'm going to make a bunch of money. You don't even know if you're going to wake up tomorrow. But that's what wealth does. It can produce this false sense of security. Here's another thing. It can fuel a lust for notoriety. Riches can make us susceptible to the illusion that my net worth affects my self-worth. And it's, this is a Kool-Aid our culture drinks. Our culture celebrates notoriety and wealth, and you know it's true because of the way we defer to the wealthy. You know I'm talking truth. We treat rich people differently. In almost every area of life, even the church, think about it, James chapter 2. Rich man walks in with nice clothes, you put him up on the front row, so glad you're here. Poor man walks in with filthy clothes, you push him to the back. And the devil uses our affection for wealth to divide people. And then finally, I I think it would be fair to say that one reason wealth makes us arrogant is it enables us to escape accountability. That one appeal of being financially secure is nobody can tell me what to do. Twice, Paul tells Timothy, command the rich. Well, here's the thing. Rich people don't like to be commanded. That's one of the perks of being rich. I don't have to do what anybody says anymore. And so what happens is that as wealth 
amasses, one accesses direct, honest feedback less often. Now, maybe at this point I need to remind you, God loves rich people. And just like no one should be thought more of because they're rich, nobody should be thought less of because they're rich. And by the way, Paul does not write, tell rich people to stop being rich. What Paul wants Timothy to help rich Christians do is guard against pride. Why? Because God opposes the proud. God gives grace to the humble. And let me tell you something. Whether you have a little or whether you have a lot, you need a lot of grace. You better stay humble. And it's hard if you're rich. And so rich Christians must be vigilant about resisting the prevailing cultural narratives that produce arrogance. Look at this picture. Very early picture of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak who founded Apple. In the early days, everybody knew everybody, called each other by name, and then the company grew, and they started having badges and name tags. And they decided they would put a number on the badge in the order that you were hired. Steve Wozniak got number one. Steve Jobs was angry. He didn't want number two. So he took zero (laughs) because he wasn't going to be number two to anybody. And you'll know their friendship eventually dissolved over enmity and jealousy. And we celebrate this kind of pride. We write biographies and we write movies about this when we need to eliminate this kind of pride. So each week I'm going to give you a big principle right from the Word of God. And here's this week. If you want to be good and rich, you must stay humble about your wealth. And you're not going to drift into humility, not in this culture. You're going to have to pursue it. So in our text, we have three ideas that are inferred that will help us stay humble. Here's number one. Admit your material wealth. Because listen, when I talk about being rich, I'm talking about you and me. Why are we so hesitant to admit that God has blessed us with wealth. In what other part of our lives are we so reluctant to acknowledge the blessing of God? If I walk up to you and say, man, you look great. You are really healthy. Oh, praise the Lord. And you have a beautiful family. Oh, praise the Lord. And you are wealthy. Whoa, 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 whoa. So some years ago, I preached here on a Sunday morning, then went straight to the airport to fly and speak at another city. And I heard my name called at the gate, so I walk up, and the lady there at the gate goes to our church, and I saw your name, Pastor, and I have bumped you up to first class. Okay, I have never sat in first class in my life. You just need to know, uh, by the way, your staff here at the church, uh, we are trying to be good stewards, and whenever we fly, we buy the cheapest flights we can get, even if we're 16 hours overseas. So I thought, okay, I'm going to find out what the big deal is with first class. Totally overrated, let me tell you. (laughs) You get your Coke in a glass instead of a cup, okay? (laughs) But I'm sitting in first class for the first time ever. And the people are coming by. And the lady that I did not recognize said, oh, hi, Pastor Rick. I freaked out. (laughs) 
She thinks I fly first class. My first time to ever do it for three hours, I could not enjoy it because all I could think is I got to find her as soon as we land and tell her I don't fly first class. Because I didn't want her to think that I was rich. And granted, most of us have had travels, maybe to a third world country or to an inner city, and we have seen extreme poverty. And for just a moment, we acknowledged that we are very blessed. But then we came back home, and it did not take long to shake off that acknowledgement and forget how blessed we are. So let me ask you this question. When global Christians read the text that you stood up and listened to a moment ago, who do you think they think about? When women in burqas talking softly in a dark room in Afghanistan read 1 Timothy 6. When underground saints in China and in a prison cell in North Korea. When brothers and sisters under a mango tree in Zambia get together and they read Command the rich. Who do you think they think of? Us. You recognize this picture. Bill Gates has done a lot of philanthropy around the world. He's in a mud hut in Africa. And as he leaves, the interpreter said, do you realize the man who was just here is the richest man in the world? Completely unimpressed, she replied, everybody from the West is rich. If you had walked into her hut after Bill Gates, she would see you the same way she sees him. As the possessor of incalculable wealth that she will never know. Don't confuse feeling rich with being rich. Sometime today, will you flip a switch and a light will come on? Will you turn a knob and clean water will come out, even hot water? Will you get in a car today? Do you have clothes to wear besides the clothes you're wearing right now? If you feel bad tomorrow, can you get some over-the-counter medicine or even a penicillin shot? You are rich. And it's not bad to be rich. But it is an affront to God to not recognize it and be grateful for it. In fact, it is arrogant. And so I'm charged by the Spirit of God as a teaching pastor to tell you you're rich. And to teach you how to be good at it. And this is what that means. Second big idea. That we must submit to biblical teaching. As rich Christians, we must put ourselves under the word of God in a humble posture. Or to put it this way, he says, command the rich. It is commendable to be commandable. I like that phrase. I made it up myself. And I want you to say it after me. Everybody, one, two, three. It is commendable to be commandable. 
Millard Fuller's established Habitat for Humanity and they build homes for people that need them. He's meeting with a group of pastors talking about global poverty. And all the pastors agreed, well, people are just too greedy. And he asked this seemingly innocuous question. You think it's possible to build a house that is so big it would be sinful to live in it? And they all agreed you could do that. Well, then he said, well, when does a house get so big that it's sinful to live in it? And there was awkward silence. And finally, one pastor said what everyone was thinking. When it's bigger than mine. <laughs> See, this is what we do in this conversation. We say that is something other people need to think about. And we read all the scripture has to say. And we think it's for them. And not for us. If you're going to stay humble. You've got to hear what the word of God says to you about wealth. And it says a lot. So last month we had this awesome series on prayer by Taylor. There are over 500 verses in the Bible about prayer. There are over 2,000 verses in the Bible about money and riches and wealth. And a whole lot of them were spoken by Jesus. He talked about money all the time. One out of every eight verses, 16 of the 38 parables, Jesus was probably the first preacher who got criticized. All he ever talks about is money. Listen, if you go to a church that never talks about money, you're at a church that isn't using Jesus as the source for their sermons. You're at a church that cannot make and grow anything but partially committed followers of Jesus. To guard against arrogance, we have to put ourselves under the Word of God and let it plant thoughts that will uproot seeds of pride. Let me show you one of those verses. It's in Deuteronomy 8, and Moses is getting the people of Israel who've been in Egyptian slavery. They've been in a wilderness for 40 years. Now they're about to go to the promised land. He's kind of giving them a charge. So he reminds them that for the last 40 years... God supernaturally fed them. They'd go outside and there would be breakfast on the ground. It was called manna. Say, so why did God do that? Because they were hungry. No, God always has a deeper reason. So listen to Moses. God did this to take away your pride. Stop just a second. See, God knows you're about to enter into a land of plenty. You are about to experience out outrageous prosperity and guard against pride I am putting in your memory banks over 35 years of the truth I am the source of your blessing he did it to take away your pride and to test you so things would go well for you in the end you might say to yourself I'm rich because of my own power and strength but remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you the power to become rich. That last verse in a different translation. Remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Let those words cultivate a spirit of humility in you. Yes, you work hard. 
You manage your finances. You invest well. You have gifts and training. You went to school. You got an education. that opened doors of opportunity. I acknowledge all of this. Where did it come from? The gifting and the opportunities and the skills and the mind that you use. You have because God first gave. He gave us the ability to produce wealth. Not so that we would be proud, but so that we would do good. So here's the last thing we have to remember to stay humble. We need to admit our material wealth, submit to biblical teaching, and commit to eternal goals. Because here is the most arrogant thought that wealth tempts us to have. The assumption that it is all for my consumption. I earned it, I made it, and it's for me. This was the problem of the man that Jesus called a rich fool. He had the capacity to achieve great wealth, and he did. And instead of thinking, how could I bless others with my wealth? He thought, how can I build a bigger barn so I can keep it all for myself? And Jesus called him a fool because he was a pail instead of a pipe. Because what God sent to him never went through him. See, God wants us to use our affluence for influence. We have something in the present world that we can use for influence in the coming world. Listen again to the text. Lay up treasure as a firm foundation for the coming age. And I think the best way we can invest in eternal goals is when we use our money to help people find Jesus. Like what we've done supporting the Amoses in Rwanda or helping start churches in Portland and in Oakland. Listen again to our rabbi. Listen to Jesus. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Now, I'm going to make a statement. I can't say I back it up with data, but I don't think you can challenge it with data either. Here's my statement. I believe that Christians like you and me living right now in this country have been blessed with more material wealth than any generation of disciples in history, we have enormous capacity to fuel God's rescue mission. And this should make us very grateful and very humble and very mindful that to whom much is given, much is expected. And so we got to be good and rich in this present world because we know the only true, sure investment is in the next. 
So I'm going to close with one more story. The picture you see of this disappointed young man was taken in 2004 in Athens at the Olympic Games. Name is Matt Emmons. He's a sharpshooter, a marksman. He's won many awards around the world. He was on the U.S. rifle team. The event was the 50-meter rifle event. It was the last round. He was so far ahead. All he had to do was hit the target, not even the bullseye, to win gold. He shot. He hit the target right in the middle. And then they took that picture. Because he was in lane two. And he mistakenly aimed at the target in lane three. And he wound up in eighth place. He was gifted. He was committed. He hit the target he was aiming at. He was aiming at the wrong target. And I am charged by the Holy Spirit to teach you. Actually, to command you. Aim at the right target with your wealth. There is no glory in dying a rich fool. Sum it all up in one sentence. The proud think they're entitled. They do. I earned it. It's mine to do with what I want. The proud think they're entitled. The humble don't think they're entitled. The humble know they're entrusted. And you and I have been trusted with great wealth so that we could make a great difference. Wealth is not going to make us arrogant. Our wealth, because we are under the word of God, is going to make us diligent and vigilant, even intelligent. Because we know we're rich. And we intend to be good at it. So let me pray for us. So God, thank you for blessing us with wealth. We confess we have not always been as quick as we should be to admit it and be grateful for it. But we will do better. What we ask for now, Father, is a greater desire and capacity to see how we can be good at being rich. How we can manage what Jesus has given us so faithfully that when he returns, he can only say, well done. Help us to be bullish on the kingdom of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.